Vijay Boyapati was born and raised in Australia and moved to the United States to do a PhD in computer science. He never started the PhD, but took a job offer instead and ended up at a small startup called Google. After leaving the much bigger Google in 2007, Vijay spent a year campaigning in the 2008 presidential election, helping to raise millions of dollars for Ron Paul. After becoming disillusioned by the political process, Vijay decided to continue to seek change through technology. Discovering Bitcoin in 2011, Vijay quickly went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. With a background in Austrian economics, he spent years thinking about the economic framework within which Bitcoin's value proposition could be understood. His thinking on the economics of Bitcoin culminated in an article, a now book, called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, which is one of the most read articles on Bitcoin after Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper and has been translated into 20 different languages. The article is often cited as the most useful resource to give to newcomers who are attempting to understand Bitcoin. Today we talked about decentralization, geopolitics, and power. By the way, Bitcoin hit an all-time high for the first time in a while today, so it's a cool day to get to chat. It's nice that it worked out like this. Yeah, it's an exciting day for sure. You know, all all eyes are on Bitcoin right now. I think you know that whenever this is something I've written about, I wrote about in my book is that when you you get an all-time high in Bitcoin after a prolonged bear market, you just get this frenzy of media interest because the way the media works is they're looking for significant events, you know, whether someone's dying or some geopolitical event or whatever it is. And and they have, often they have stories written prior to the event happening so they can just sort of get the story out immediately. So what you have is that a lot of people are paying attention as Bitcoin gets to the all-time high, and then the media sort of floods the population with this information. So it's like this double sort of psychological hit to a population like, wow, this thing is going up, just made an all-time high, maybe I should get interested. And then everyone in the media is writing about it as well, which reinforces that as well. And so it it tends to cause this feeding frenzy. So it's definitely an interesting day to, to be looking at Bitcoin. Totally. So, Vijay, I think it it makes the most sense to start with some history on you. You found yourself writing a book on Bitcoin with endorsements from Michael Saylor and Jack Dorsey. Like, bit of a weird path. What's the rundown? How did it all come about? Yeah, so I'm a computer scientist by trade, and I I went to the Australian National University in Australia and did my uh, Bachelor of Science about 21 years ago, finished my Bachelor of Science with a major in computer science and a minor in mathematics. And I came to the US to do a PhD in computer science, but I got a a job offer and I eventually, I ended up at a startup called Google. It was a a startup at the time, much, much smaller than it is today. So I never even ended up starting my PhD because that path, that career path ended up seeming more attractive. And I I ended up doing a lot of the things you do in a PhD. I still got to publish papers, I got to go to conferences, and I got to build software as well, which is something I've always loved doing since I learned how to program when I think I was eight or nine years old. So I worked at Google for you know five years or so, and that's when I got exposed to economics, actually a particular school of economics called Austrian economics. And it's, it's interesting, you know, most people don't think about this, but economics isn't really like other fields of science. It's not like physics or chemistry or biology where 
there are different schools of physics. There isn't like a Chicago school of physics and an Austrian school of physics. But but the Austrian school of economics really puts an emphasis on understanding economic phenomena based on the actions of the individual and then building economic models based on the actions of the individual. And then some fantastic economists, some of them Nobel Prize winners like Friedrich Hayek, who are Austrian economists, And so I got into them when I was at Google. I had met a bunch of people at Google who were libertarians and who exposed me to this stuff in the early, mid-2000s. And I just went down the rabbit hole. I was so fascinated by this because I felt like this is a tool for understanding the world. And as a student of economics yourself, you know, I'm sure you recognize that it's a powerful tool for understanding how markets work, how you know, nations work, how trade works. So it's a, it's a fantastic subject, but it's also a subject that's very, I'd say, politically captured in a sense, because it, it has such broad implications for policy, for government policy, that there's this strong tendency for economists to be drawn to saying things that are friendly to the government. And so you get this sort of branching off of different schools of thought in economics, the Keynesian school is very friendly to governments, says that, you know, when there's a, when there's a crisis, the government is what we need. The government needs to step in and provide fiscal stimulus. The Chicago schools, you know, similar almost in a way, even though it's thought of as a um, a free market school of economics, they, they have a sort of similar thing with monetary policy that in cases of, you know, monetary crises, such as the Great Depression, when you had a a collapse in the money supply in the United States, the Federal Reserve should step in and protect the money supply and try and keep the money supply steady rather than collapsing. And the Austrian school essentially says you need to let the market work. These interventions have unintended consequences. And the unintended consequences are often worse than the thing that's trying to be fixed. So, yeah, that's, you know, a kind of long-winded way of giving you my background and how I got interested in economics. And I spent several years trying to understand economics and doing a lot of self-study, published a couple of papers. And, you know, I, I left Google and I went to campaign for Ron Paul in the 2008 election. And it didn't work out and it kind of, you know, made me feel a little dejected about the political process. And I, and I felt that way for a few years. But then 2011 came around and I, I found out about Bitcoin and I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I, I recognized it, you know, from my study of economics almost immediately as a monetary phenomenon. This is a monetary good. And the, all the ideas in Austrian economics to help understand how monetary phenomena work I thought applied to Bitcoin. And so it's become this passion of mine to try and figure out Bitcoin. Like, what is this new thing? Why is it valuable? What is an economic framework for thinking about why it's valuable? Not only that it is valuable, but that its value is increasing very, very rapidly. I mean, Bitcoin is now a trillion dollar asset, which is astounding. This is something that didn't exist essentially a decade ago, and now it's a trillion dollar asset. So how is, how is that possible? And so I've spent the last decade thinking about that. And I, I ended up writing uh, an article in 2018 to provide an economic framework for how to understand Bitcoin. And more recently this year, I, I expanded and updated the article and turned it into a book. Awesome. 
So I, I don't want this to become a Bitcoin 101 talk because I know you've done a lot of those, but I'm still of the mindset that it, it helps to start simply. So why does decentralization matter in the first place? Like when it comes to debasement and lowering people's time horizons, like is solving the Byzantine general's problem that big of a deal? Yeah, it's, it's a huge deal. It's, it is actually a fundamental breakthrough in computer science. It allows something that has never been possible in the history of the world, which is the transfer of value from one person to another person anywhere else as easily as sending an email without needing anyone's permission. You don't need the permission of a bank. You don't need the permission of a government. That has profound implications for uh, world trade for how people save, all sorts of economic issues, because money is really the foundation for all trade and savings. So if you have big innovation in that base layer of any economy, it's a very, very important change. So that that's kind of the sig significance of it. So you mentioned decentralization. That's the point that I wanted to get to. The reason decentralization is important is that no one controls Bitcoin. And the fact that no one controls it and it has this property of decentralization is what gives credibility to its monetary policy. If it were the case that there was some entity that had a significant amount of control over Bitcoin, then your trust in the monetary policy would come down to your trust in that entity. And, you know, the Federal Reserve likes to say they want to control inflation and keep it at a certain level, but you really have to trust them. And Satoshi Nakamoto talked about this is the problem with the current status quo financial system is that it relies on trust, trust in these institutions that have really failed us over and over again. Now, the, the institutions like the Federal Reserve in the United States, their failures haven't been so gargantuan that they've destroyed you know, the country, like in countries where they've had central banks which caused hyperinflations, they're literally destroying the entire country. The, when you have a currency that hyperinflates, you're essentially going back to a barter economy, which is a very primitive state for any economy to be in. Now, the Federal Reserve hasn't done anything that catastrophic yet, but it certainly led to some major, major failure in our economy over the last you know, 20 years, the financial crisis, you know, some people like to blame it on banks and stuff, but ultimately the financial crisis was caused by the Federal Reserve holding interest rates too low for a prolonged period of time and spurring this speculative fervor in the housing by giving people a very, very strong incentive to gamble on houses. You know, back in the early 2000s or mid 2000s, you could buy a half million or a million dollar house on minimum wage. And why could you do that? It's because the Federal Reserve was pumping this economic stimulus into the economy and people saw that houses were a good way to bet on that and it just fed on itself and it got you know crazier and crazier until it popped as all bubbles do when they're when they're built on credit and easy and easy money and, and credit provided by a central bank. So yeah, I you know I think that's the problem with our system. It's built on trust and Bitcoin's decentralization is providing an alternative system which you don't need to trust. You know, I think most would agree that Bitcoins and crypto in general, really, that Bitcoin's biggest existential threat is regulation. I think a point that Albert Wenger, I think he's a venture capitalist, brought up when I spoke with him last week, was that 
people drawing comparisons to the internet in the late 90s probably isn't fair regulatorily because you know the internet was very much welcomed by legislators while bitcoin poses more of an existential threat so i'm i'm curious how do you think that's going to pan out yeah i think that's a good point i wouldn't say it's completely true what you're saying that that the regulators were completely friendly towards the internet certainly there was a a big battle in the early 90s around cryptography it used to be thought cryptography used to be thought of as sort of a military grade technology and and exporting cryptography was this almost considered treason uh and cryptography is really the foundation for the modern internet you know when it, when you do when you get charge your credit card it's going cryptographically encrypted channel so that no one can see what's happening and there was a big free speech battle in the, in the early 90s where folks were trying to say that look these cryptographic functions is just computer programs and like i can print out the computer program they're not that complicated i can print it out on a t-shirt that's a free speech issue are you saying i can't print these letters on my t-shirt and by printing the letters on the t-shirt you're announcing hey here's a function which lets you encrypt information and keep it secret from anyone including governments so it became a free speech issue that ultimately the folks who were arguing that side won so th- that's the part that i would disagree with that it was in- entirely regulatorily welcomed by congress now i think it is it, it is correct in the sense that um money is something that governments really really want to control the the transfer of value is something governments always wanted to keep a very tight control on and so bitcoin upending the monetary system is getting a lot of people concerned the the current concern from regulators is more along the lines of consumer protection as they call it they want to protect the consumer from you know products that might lose the money or the volatility or whatever but ultimately the concern of regulators is going to be that the financial system is going to be upended by something new that they don't control i don't think the establishment has kind of fully awoken to this threat but at at cer- a certain point when bitcoin's price gets to say 500,000 or a million dollars per bitcoin then you have so much of the world savings held in bitcoin that central banks lose control of monetary policy because monetary policy is essentially a tool for manipulating the pool of savings in an economy when they lower interest rates what they're doing is saying you don't want to keep your savings in cash because you're losing value on that cash so you they're trying to force you to go out and spend and invest are uh, they punishing you for savings But if you have this alternative system where you can keep your savings in a way that can't be manipulated by the Federal Reserve, they lose the power of monetary policy to manipulate the, the economy. And I think that is going to be in the future the big big concern for regulators. The thing is, do they have the power to stop it? That that's the question. This is a decentralized system. It, it's almost like saying could, if they didn't like something that happened on the internet, could they shut the internet down? probably not because the internet has become so embedded into society and it's so depended upon by so many people that there would be such a huge political backlash at least in democratic nations if you're an authoritarian country like china maybe you could ban something like bitcoin at least temporarily but in the united states it seems very unlikely to me because at some point the number of people who own bitcoin is so significant that banning bitcoin is kind of like banning 401k's 
or retirement funds. If you tried to ban the 401k program, you'd have, you know, riots on the streets. You'd have a revolution. So it's just, it's not politically possible. And, and eventually you have enough people who own Bitcoin that the people in Congress become friendly towards just because their constituents own it. And we're already seeing this. We're seeing Congress congressman. We even have a senator now who's very openly pro-Bitcoin and uh, she advocates for friendly regulation to Bitcoin. I think over the next four years, you're going to see a major, major shift as as the majority of the population in the US has exposure to Bitcoin or has some significant amount of savings in Bitcoin. Okay, so taking another step back now, fast forwarding to maybe a reality where the largest nation states have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. What does that mean geopolitically? Like the US dollars had the luxury of being the world's reserve currency for a while now. Don't they have the most to lose by adopting this? Absolutely right. Yeah, the, the US has the world's reserve currency, the dollar. And Charles de Gaulle, the former president of France, called this an exorbitant privilege that the the US had. And he called it an exorbitant privilege because the US was able to export the inflationary policies of its central bank around the world. And they had the privilege of being able to create money out of thin air and then use this debased money in trade with other countries. So it, it was something that he saw and was really upset about. And at the time, the US was on a kind of pseudo gold standard. And what France did is they said, look, these dollars we have that you've given us, we don't believe really backed by enough gold. So give us our gold back. And, and that that's the point at which the US had to get off the gold standard because people no longer believed in the US dollar. Sorry, not people, but nation states stopped believing in the US dollars being backed by gold. What it's going to mean I think ultimately is that nations are going to have to act on a level playing field with each other. The US is not going to be in this kind of privileged position anymore where it has the reserve currency and it can use that position to intimidate other countries. When the US has a problem with a country, it uses its financial power and the fact that like it has a reserve currency, it provides the, the financial rails for the, the world financial system to intimidate countries. Like if Iran or, or Venezuela, they're completely cut off from the international financial system because the US doesn't like them. Ultimately, the US is going to lose that power for better or worse. You know, you know there may be some benefits to that. But another thing that I think is really important is that historically, central banks were created to fund uh, warfare. The first central banks were created to fund the British government's war with France. And when you have a monetary base that's not controlled by a government, it's much, much harder to fund warfare. And this is an, uh, actually an issue that I'm pretty passionate about because being against the US intervention in other countries is something that I think is, I think it's an American value. It's a value that goes back to the founding fathers. And having a monetary system where the, the, the government can't inflate the money supply to fund these foreign adventures, as the founders would have said, is going to pull back on governments. So what it means is that the funding mechanism for governments is going to have to shift from inflation, where they create money out of thin air, to taxation. And, you know, whatever you think about the role of the government, I think taxation is a much more honest system of funding than inflation because governments have to go into people's pockets and literally take the money out and people know how much is being taken out 
and they have to justify to the population, we're taking this much money out because we want to fund these programs. Do you want us to fund these programs? Yes or no? And yet you, you sort of see what's happening. With inflation, most people don't understand it. They don't see that it's happening. They just see prices rising and they don't connect it to the fact that the Federal Reserve just created trillions of dollars. So I think one of the great consequences of moving to a Bitcoin standard, which is not controlled by central banks, is that governments are going to have to move to a means of funding that's much more honest than it is today. So what's your, I'd like just to sort of wrap up a bit more high level on your take on just centralized power. So, you know, uh, big tech, for instance, you know, hardcore Bitcoiners, Bitcoin maxis, whatever you want to call them, they tend to fall into more libertarian or anarchist camps ideologically. So I'm wondering where you lie on that spectrum when it comes to what I'd say is the biggest concentration of power today. Yeah, so I, I definitely identify as a libertarian, but I think the point you're making is a really great one. The sort of boilerplate libertarian response to the actions of companies like Facebook and Google is like, oh, they're private companies. They should be able to do whatever they want. I actually kind of disagree with that. I think these companies have gotten such a massive concentration of power in their hands and they're stepping into the realm of politics they are regulating speech. They are having a profound impact on free speech uh, in society when they get to decide what viewpoints allowable on their platform. And they've become the de facto platform in our now digital world for controlling, you know, the distribution of information. Whether you like it or not, they have uh, monopolies, essential monopolies on the distribution of information. Like no one's going to come along and, you know, create Alex book or something like that, which is going to supersede Facebook or, or the Alex search engine. That's just not, not going to happen. They have such powerful positions and they're making political decisions for entire populations. And, and what I think is really troubling is they are exporting the values of a very small part of the country, Silicon Valley, to the entire world. They're saying our values need to be your values and I think that's just wrong. I think that's really unhealthy. I think it's it's ironically completely against multiculturalism because it's it's creating a monoculture in the online world where you know you say what Facebook uh, thinks is okay or what Google thinks is okay. Otherwise, you're deplatformed and your voice is silenced and your ability to explain to other people why your point of view is important is completely removed. So I, I am deeply concerned about these companies. I worked at Google for a long time, but I'm deeply concerned about the power that it's gotten itself. You know, as someone with very strong libertarian sympathies, I hesitate to say this has got to be fixed or regulated by the government, but it's something that, you know, Overall, we need to think about, is there a way to provide a decentralized solution with technology that would disrupt these companies? Or is it regulation that needs to come in and say, you guys should not have the power to decide who gets to say something, who doesn't. That's that's a political power and you should not have it. So it's a very difficult issue. And I think the boilerplate libertarian answer is a, a little bit naive in, in this area. Awesome. Vijay, I think that's the, uh, the time we got. I appreciate you doing this this has been awesome yeah of course it's awesome talking to you alex and keep up the great work thank you so much